Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we sit down and talk with marketing thought leaders and experts on the issues and topics of interest to marketers and business leaders everywhere. Today, I'm sitting down with Ben Peacock, founder of The Republic of Everyone, a world-leading brand, sustainability and innovation company. Welcome, Ben. G'day, Darren. And uh, joining him is Scott Matthias Flynn, who is the partner and head of strategy also at The Republic of Everyone. Welcome, Scott. Hello. Now, uh, you talk about brand, world-leading brand sustainability and innovation company. Who's going to answer the question of what does that practically mean? (laughs) Uh, Look, we're living in a really changing world, you know, so innovation has got to be part of everything you do at the moment, whether it be digital, strategic, just understanding your customer better, all those sorts of things. Um, In terms of sustainability and brand, what you're seeing is, uh, I guess, the from what we're seeing, the the problems of the world are not only becoming more acute, but they're becoming more urgent in the mind of the consumer. Um, And of course, brand's job is to be relevant to the consumer. So what you're seeing is that more and more and more, as consumers want answers to these problems, brands are either providing answers or they're becoming yesterday's brands. Um, So in that sense, what we go in is innovate ways that um, companies, brands, can stand for causes and in doing so, um, gain a business benefit. Right. Well, but we see all the time brands starting to make, you know, claims and, and, you know, doing good. Um, And yet there's a lot of cynicism out there, isn't there, Scott? Yeah, there is, because um, it's called woke washing. It's like greenwashing, except, you know, the woke? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, going woke washing. Um, yeah, woke washing is basically when, um, you know, you claim to stand for a higher purpose or a set of values, but you're running your business unresponsibly or a lower set of values. Um, so when organizations um, get it wrong or it's see-through, it's inauthentic, that's when problems start to occur. Yeah, because I, I think that one of the problems is that often part of this is driven by marketing and correct me if I'm wrong guys but part of it's driven by marketing Mm. and then there's a separate part of the business corporate affairs or or operations Mm. that often have totally different agendas is that part of the a hundred percent look and they're not the only two different agendas within an organization you've got um, you've got marketing, you've got finance, you've got human resources which is concerned with employee engagement, you've got corporate responsibility slash sustainability, slash sometimes um, their kind of corporate affairs. They sit in different teams who's concerned, of course, with media relations and government relations and those sorts of things. And everybody has a different agenda. I mean, um, the the name of the game is to look at all these different departments within an organisation and say, how can we actually benefit everyone? Because if you think about a company that does this well, it creates employee engagement, which is good for HR. It creates uh, a story for corporate affairs where we are genuinely doing good things, which means you, which is a defensive move to some degree, but that can be good if you need good government relations like banks, for example. Um, you can often drop your costs through, especially environmental sustainability, where you're reducing you know, water or energy or those sorts of things or waste, which is good for your operating costs. So your CFO is going to be happy. And then, of course, if you're doing it right, you're creating a really good story for your customers. So your marketing people are going to be happy. And that's, 
that is where the true benefit is, is when you cannot let this live in one department, but actually make it benefit the whole of the company. So Ben, you make it sound like this is a positive across the balance sheet and the P&L. Is that right? I think it's got to be. Look, at the end of the day, a business will keep investing in things that benefits the business. I mean, we're hyper-commercial about this. You, our core goal is to create good in the world, but you have to be realistic about that. Is If that is red on the balance sheet, eventually there's going to be a strike put through it. Unless you can make that a driver of um, this business outperforming other businesses, it's simply not going to survive. Well, we saw that back in 2007. You know, around that time in Australia, there was a lot of corporate talk about climate change. And then the global financial crisis, the recession, the global recession, whatever you want to call it, hit. And suddenly, you know, environmental impacts took a backseat to just keeping the doors open and keeping the money flowing through. Is that the type of thing you're talking about? The good intentions also have to come with good business? Y- yes. Uh, well, 100% they do. And I think actually it is a very interesting story that, and it's correct. And I think you see it in any new thing that um, that comes through for business. The dot-com, uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember how dot-com came through, had exactly the same um, pathway. You know, it came in the tech bubble. Of yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. So suddenly, like internet hit, and it became this potential business thing. And they, everybody was starting a dot com, and then businesses all had a website. And nobody knew why, and like it was the big thing to do, but no one was making money. In fact, they were throwing money out and getting nothing back. And of course, the whole thing burst because very few had figured out how to make money at it. And so you get this sort of. Um, it becomes fashion without any underpinnings, mm. business underpinnings. Then what happens is everyone walks away for a little while and goes, oh, that doesn't work, you know, and they're all suspicious of it. And then, of course, some companies who are truly forward thinking keep going and keep going and they just keep learning and they keep learning. And lo and behold, that's where Amazon came from. I mean, mm. Amazon was just books and they bought CD Now, which was the CDs. And, you know, they they went like down like everyone else, but they stayed in business and slowly, but they learned how to do this. And as they learned, they learned how to make it a So actually make it a business and make it a profitable business. That's right. It's interesting because when you brought up the uh, tech bubble, Mm. it came right on the back of Y2K and those old enough from last century to remember that. (laughs) Last millennium. (laughs) Good point. Last millennium. Um, You know, there was all this fear about technology actually crashing. Yeah, I remember. uh, When everything went to zeros and that didn't happen. Um, What's what's your perspective on that, Scott? On on uh, Y two K not happening. Well, no, on the fact that yeah, you know, we had the tech bubble, then we had the re- the global recession. Now, yeah, has this disrupted the focus of business? It absolutely has. Yeah, like I think you know, going back to the the GFC, typically you know, as, as organisations mature with their um, responsibility, their environmental social responsibility. It starts off being a cost to the business. Um, you know, like if you want to, just from a very simple business point of view, if you want to um, make a, uh, future reductions on energy, it costs money to invest in solar or invest in efficiencies to begin with. Um, and when, you know, the GFC happens, everyone wants to cut back on everything that they're spending. So there's a lot of things that get on the chopping board. So um, from a very um, sort of economic point of view, uh, that journey stopped for a lot of people but as Ben said there are a lot of organizations that understood that it was a, um, a growth area not just 
something that was needing to be done now. It's actually how people are looking at doing business on an ongoing basis. It's the future of business, really. Why is it that uh, Europe seems to be hmm. so more committed and so far ahead of the US, Australia, you know, and, and especially when, you know, we saw recently earlier this year the, uh, the, the confrontation in Oceania hmm. with all those uh, island nations that are watching the sea level rise and yet Australia is still sitting there going, well, all the way with coal. Why is there this difference? I don't know. I think, I think um, being European, maybe I can yeah, for, take the lead on for this. For three more weeks. <laughs> um, oh, oh, that's a new, we'll get back to that for three more weeks. You're about to become an Australian yeah. citizen. Is that what's happening? No, Brexit, mate. Oh, Brexit. All oh, right. Um, yes. So, look, I think, you know, in terms of the countries themselves, uh, Europe, European countries have been around for a long time. They've sort of gone through their burgeoning growth stages and figuring out who they are and figuring out as a society what they want to be. You know, Australia is still a young country. America is still a young country as well, a bit older. And it just happens, I think, with, uh, you know, this idea of where do we want to be? Where does Australia want to be as a, as a country where uh, it takes advantage of, um, of, you know, its, its kind of positions, its natural um, riches uh, in mining and um, minerals, so um, you know, I think that I think that um, just society in Europe is is a little bit sort of further down uh, down the line. Plus, also, it's probably got more deeply entrenched social history and social inequality, which um, which you know, I mean, there are pockets of it here, but Australia is largely sort of middle class. So, uh, has that been, had an impact? Starting an agency like the Republic of Everyone in a country like Australia, has that had an impact in your focus then? Have you found that, you know, you get traction offshore more than onshore or has it been quite a balance? I think, in a way, I think what we've created is the agency equivalent of a triple backflip with a pike, you know, because you're starting in in a country with a very small population with that is less far ahead, as Scott said, just historically and currently perhaps in these issues, um, and just has a limited customer base. I mean, we've often looked at this and said our customer base is, first of all, the company has to have a head office in Australia or an autonomous office, which mm-hmm. is not all companies. I mean, especially if you look at, say, car companies, really they're kind of sales outposts for hmm. a lot of that. So you, it's very hard to get these decisions made in this country. So you've got to have some level of leadership within this country, which already cuts you down significantly. Then you have to have a company that's actually interested in being quite pioneering. And in the nicest possible way, I just don't think that Australia is built on innovation much. And simply because, as Scott said, I mean, we've had it good for so long by kind of doing what we do. So why change that? Yeah, we you know? rode on the sheep's back, as they That's say, right. for a long time, and now it's the mining. That's you know, right. The I don't forget property. Boom. Yeah. But in a way, I think... property, yes. Um, in a way, I think that's been of benefit to us because when we first started this, um, from what I could count from Googling, we were the third in the world. So the first would have been Futera in the UK, who are our friends, and then there was one in um, the US who had started in this space, and we were number three. If you Google this space now, there are a lot of companies doing what we're doing. Um, but still, we really are 
kind of it in Australia within reason or the only one that do, does the whole scope of what we do. And we counted the other day that in 12 years, we've had 12 competitors come and go in Australia. Mm. And, and that says something. It says uh, hopefully we're doing something right, but it also says we have to be really, really, really on our game to survive in Australia because I then go and Google these other ones and there's companies in America who have 60 people. We've got about 20, you know, uh, and I look at their work and I just think it's what we were doing five, 10 years ago. And so you, you do kind of, I think, in a way, being in a small, hard market makes you have to be good. <laughs> I, I, look, I have a lot of sympathy for you because when I started doing what we do, I kept looking overseas thinking that's where I'll see the future. Mm. And uh, in actual fact, a lot of the larger markets mm. don't try harder. I think there is a bit of you try harder, you push boundaries in a market like Australia. Mm. One, because it's relatively small, but also because it is hard to get change. It's it's hard to get change and it's also, for, you know, it's, it's actually hard to unearth the people that really want to do it. <clears throat> so it's graft all around, if I'm honest. Um, I think if you have a much bigger market, it can breed a bit of mediocrity. Yeah, and complacency mm. because, you know, you don't have to work as hard. I think for us here, we've really had to work hard. It's been a hard <laughs> craft for, for quite yeah. a long time and I think um, you know what we've been lucky with uh, in a lot of ways is that um, a lot of the companies uh, and brands that do work with us are ones that really want to be leaders and they want to kind of make a stand and they want to go out there and do stuff which is why we get to work with Ben and Jerry's which is why we get to work with Patagonia you know they're the poster children that people talk to a lot but we're actually the ones that are doing the work. Now, it's interesting, those two examples, because they are companies that are built on their philosophy about doing good, like from day one. Mm -hmm. you know? And do you think it's easier if the founders actually set that agenda than it is for more traditional companies to sort of embrace this and bring about change? I'm not saying impossible, but is no, it? No, of course it is. I mean, of course it is. It's so much easier to bake it in. And you see it in brands like Thank You who come through and really come from nowhere to take a decent yeah. slice of a market. Um, and they're very right place, right time. Um, but having said that, you know, like I always laugh. People go, oh, this new world, it's that you're in. I'm like, yeah, new, like the body shop that started with against animal testing. Mm. Three words, like in 1973. This is not new. People have been building this companies off this for ages. So we talk about built in and bolt on. And built in is when you get start a brand with that. But it's, of course, very hard to start a new brand. So um, companies like that are very uh, interesting for us because in a way they challenge us because they've been doing it longer than we have often. And we have to, and they're interested in our um, breadth of experience, but we have to make sure we're super on our game. You, you present an idea to Patagonia, like they know, you know, rubbish when they see it and they know on brand and good when they see it. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't do it with like companies that are what we call bolt on. It's just you have to always, you can't just bolt it straight on top. You, almost if, to use, you know, the analogy, you have to go find the, the bolts that are already there and go, where does this already fit? There's always some sort of social purpose in a brand or inevitably almost some, you know. You look at banks and if, originally there were people trying to get together or insurance companies trying to get together to, to spread risk or share the ability to use money or those sorts of things. They're actually social businesses originally or um you look at a lot of things and they it, as i say they began with some sort of cause and that gets lost over time so if you can go back and sort of almost look for what we call the genus story the beginning story of a brand and why it existed inevitably you will find something to start to attach to and suddenly it becomes more built in and less popular <coughs> mm. i think um i think that's right and um you know 
There are some industries that Ben's you know, just talked about. Insurance is a classic, which is um, geared really for the community. That's why, where it came from and also what it still does. It might still be, if you are cynical at it, um, lost behind ivory towers. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of competing motivations throughout a business, which ends up with things like the Royal Commission. But... Um, <laughs> You know, it's much easier for certain categories, uh, for legacy brands, we call them, to establish more of a um, social purpose because, you know, social purpose was built in at their roots, um, but it just wasn't necessarily uh, identified or sort of uh, taught through. It's definitely a lot easier to do that than it is for, say, chocolate um, to kind of solve (laughs) racial racial (laughs) diversity or, um, you know, really take on issues that aren't to do with who they are as a as a business or as a as a brand historically it's much harder to do that but there is there is opportunity for them you know every stage of a uh, in a, in a brand or a company there will be some level of uh, impact that they have in society either through a supply chain or in the way that the product is consumed how it's consumed with whom it's consumed there will be some level of uh, societal impact that it um, has, whether positive or negative, that's part of the challenge. But then it's really about um, you know taking that and understa- understanding that to begin with, and then taking it and uh, turning that into um, you know positive impact. Well, I just want to pick up on that uh, little comment there about chocolate because mm-hmm. it's interesting from the point of view that when you go, as you say, Ben, when you go back to the start of a business there is often a very positive reason for that business to exist. And when you look at the company Cadbury, when it first started in Bourneville, the attitude of the founders, and I've forgotten which religion it is, maybe seven, I won't say it because I'll get it wrong, but they built a whole village of very Mm. high quality housing for the workers because Mm. it was all about the, the collective benefit of mm. this factory and this business for everyone involved, not just shareholders, but the employees. You know, it was based on a very um, strong belief in mm. the common good. Yep. And it's interesting because before the corporation, as we know it today, most businesses were built for the common good. You, know, mm. you think of all the guilds, you know, we've got today the IWF, which we know is an insurance company, but that was all the interve- uh, the International Order of Oddfellows. Right? <laughs> That's what IWF stands for. And it was a guilt. Mm. It was where people collectively got together to insure each other, to mm. look after mm. the common good. Um, somewhere along the line, I think corporations and the idea of only existing for shareholder value is actually what's distorted this. And that the fact that we're questioning the value of corporations is why people are almost in a knee-jerk reaction, trying to get back to, well, why do we exist beyond shareholder value? Mm. Yeah, and and the Gina story there, going back to your roots, is often where organisations find it. But um, there's definitely... Um, there's definitely a move for organisations to have a more distinct role for society. Um, You know, the sustainability argument in here is essentially that um, businesses 
and society need to coexist or businesses need to operate for society rather than at the expense of it. And a lot of organisations over time, like you say, have sort of moved away into this idea of efficient production, efficient management, efficient sales for the purpose of maximising profit. That ideology of shareholder first is being challenged. Um, and it was as recent as this week where um, um, <coughs> there was a whole... The, the round table the of round CEOs table. Yeah, came right. out and said, no, no, it's no longer shareholder value. I'm a bit cynical about that. I think they came out and made that statement and then ran straight back to their office and phoned all their institutional yeah. shareholders and said, look, we still love you. Don't worry. You know, we'll look after you. Possibly, but it's a symbol of, um, of times changing. Um, and I think, you know, the idea of, uh, of businesses operating for just shareholders is, is changing. And I think that the top end of town uh, do realise that, whether that's just an operational thing in a business at the moment or whether or not that and, and doesn't quite get through to brand uh, entirely. But it's definitely happening. But I'm sure you've both seen the research that says, you know, the baby boomers who are now, uh, if they were born in the 19, late 40s, and now entering retirement mm. are still the most selfish, self-centered, don't care about anything but their own uh, financial uh, considerations. And so people say, well, you know, it's, it, they keep talking, pointing to the millennials as driving this, but it's actually beyond just generational, is it? Or, or I, is it? I don't like ever pinning things on age-related demographics, I think it's wrong. You know, I think it's very easy to look at the boomers and go, they all own seven houses and essentially spent the entire world's carbon budget getting rich and having fun. Um, but then <laughs> you can also say they're the ones that started the whole, you know, age of Aquarius and the hippie movement. And you look at people like Bill McKibben, who, you know, is probably the world's, apart from now, Greta um, Thunberg, probably the world's number one spokesperson on climate change, you know, and he's a baby. I mean, you kind of go, it's just not fair to do that. Some of the greatest rebels of our time, to be honest, are baby boomers. And then you, millennials are an interesting, they, obviously it's so much more poignant for them because it's so much closer. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of disposability in the way that things are consumed by that generation and all of us. And then nobody even talks about Generation X anymore, just stuck in the middle. But um, <laughs> the um, Except that, that they're, they're a really important generation. And I think that they're inclined to err on the side of wanting to leave the world a better place yeah. than they are necessarily this generalisation about the boomers mm. being the... Because, you know... Yes, the boomers have given us a lot of things. The one I always remember is greed for want of a better word is good, which was uh, <laughs> Gordon, Ge Gecko. Yeah, Gordon Gecko in Wall Street. <laughs> but he, was the, he was, to be fair, the anti-hero. I mean, they gave us the environmental movement. The environmental movement today, I mean, it, it seemed it sort of lost in the 60s, didn't it? But at the end of the, you know, the times they were changing and they didn't really change or they changed the wrong, the long, the wrong way. But that, the whole roots of the environmental movement are in the baby boomers. So, mm. so as I say, I just don't think think you can look at it like that. I, I think people are inherently have conflicting um, needs and interests in their world. And, and, and really the whole conversation is about short-termism versus long-termism. And, and as a human, we are all prone to short-term benefit over the promise of long-term gain. 
but this is really what we're talking about. And if somebody goes, hey, listen, you can knock down that lump of forest, do something bad quietly, you probably won't get busted for it and you'll get rich, but long-term won't be good for the planet. A lot of people would be tempted by that. That's an angel and devil on your shoulder moment. And that's really what we've been living with for a long time. And by making the short-term decisions, ultimately, it's like, essentially, it's like the world's been living with a credit card and we've been able to keep spending and building up a debt and just kind of ignoring it. And the debt is getting, like, the, it's starting to get called in and you're starting to get your interest payments and big storms and social issues and, and, and then, like, migration issues and the whole lot, you know, all kind of comes together to me around a mix of overpopulation and overconsumption. And, and so... In that sense, I guess when you go back to your, your shareholder versus stakeholder conversation within a company, it's exactly that. If you're thinking shareholders uh, and shareholders only, you're probably thinking about the next three to six months. If you're thinking stakeholders, meaning your entire supply chain, your employees, your brand value long term, you're thinking long term. Mm. And if for everybody who is rewarded in an organization, if they're rewarded within the next three to six months, it's very hard to think long term. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned before Amazon, and yet one of the great things that uh, Jeff Bezos has done is actually got his shareholders on side with basically saying, you know what, you're going to get no returns along the way. But mm. what I will do is build a fantastic capital value mm. within this organisation. And they've stuck by him, haven't they? So it is possible. It is possible yep. for a CEO <laughs> not to be held ransom to delivering quarterly mm. returns if they have a big vision. Is part of this doing good potentially the platform for that big vision? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Paul Pullman did this, does the same at Unilever. You know, he's fighting against the... Did. Did. did, well, <laughs> did. He's left now. <laughs> but yeah, Unilever is a great example because yeah. you guys work on work with Ben and Jerry yeah. and they were acquired by Unilever and yet still were able to maintain that purpose-driven vision even within a big corporate like that. It's actually written into the constitution of the sale. That's a very interesting corporate deal that if you look into it. But more broadly, the vision that Paul Pullman said, uh, so I'm sure you're about to say this, but the, um, he said three, he goes, if you're interested in three to six month returns, we're not your company. And that was, what, a decade ago or so. And now they almost all their growth, or 60% plus of their growth, is in products with a sustain with either with core sustainability in them that they built and in, brought into their portfolio, or with brands that have a purpose-based message. So he, you're right; he's had a vision. It's actually been very, very strong for them. Yeah, he's, he's proved it, which is what's been needed. Um, it's, I think it's all very well standing up there and saying, "Hey, we don't want to be beholden to your three-month sort of uh, um, cries." Yeah. yeah, but. Um, uh, yeah, moving to annual and, and also um, proving that investing in the right places in sustainability has uh, really worked for them has been um, it's been a real success point. I'm very happy that a company as big as Unilever has, has done it. To prove that it can actually be done. Yeah, that's Because right. then as a, a, a sort of almost like a parallel to that, we've seen 3G Capital go and invest in, in places like uh, Kraft Heinz and bring the traditional cutting costs, you know, really focusing on bottom line uh, profit development mm. and then see very quickly the short term, the short termism 
actually erodes any chance of long-term results. So it's been an interesting juxtaposition between the two. Yeah, and I think we're in an interesting time where businesses um, uh, are seeing that choice and seeing the different pathways and are able to make decisions based on that. Mm. Now, you guys have used the term sustainability uh, throughout this conversation, and I find it really interesting because... You know, when I talk to people about sustainability, there's a large group of people that think it's economic sustainability, Mm -hmm. i.e. profitability. (laughs) Um, What What's your broadest and any? This is a paradox. Broadest and most focused way of describing sustainability. (laughs) Wow. Um, Well, for us, the broadest sense is environmental, social, and economic outcomes. Um, But broadly, it's about societal outcomes um you know the environment will recover when we're not around (laughs) to mess it up so um you know the the imperative really about the environmental side is obviously to do it for environmental reasons for natural reasons ecological reasons but um, ultimately um people uh, are why we probably care about doing that um, because we're the ones that are going to be impacted. So there's a bigger societal um, uh, issue. The way that we talk about it in simple terms is just um, eco-ethical impact. That seems to sum up environmental and social um, reasoning. Uh, so that's kind of some of the language that we use. But we try not to use the word sustainability because it's tarred with a lot of history. It's um, politicised and um, also for a lot of people it just means the environment. Um, so you tend to um, have different conversations with different organisations who have different understanding and different um, sort of um, culture internally that requires you to use different words as you're dealing with them. So, you know, we use sustainability sometimes, we use um, CSR sometimes, we use community sometimes, uh, or it can just be bigger societal impact. We're doing a social impact for someone at the moment. And the other one I like is the rise of the discussion around ethical decision-making mm. and sustainability mm-hmm. because I think it also weaves its way through all of those. You know, what's, right, what's the ethical approach for society? What's the ethical approach for the environment? Mm. Because there's something about the term ethics, especially when you consider it in the, the sort of frame of minimising damage. Mm-hmm. You know, if ethical behaviour is about minimising the negative impact that you have on everything around you, mm. it's actually a quite good term for bringing to business, isn't it? it look, it's good. I, I have mixed feelings on it. I like it because it speaks straight to values. It, it says to me, do what's right, not what's convenient or easy. And that, in its sense, goes to who you are as a human which embeds it right down to the core of you have to live with this, this decision. Mm. Um, so that I like about it. The other side, the side I don't like about it is we live in a Donald Trump world, you know, where you're looking at someone who's, I don't know, I can't find an ethic on him, yet is winning. So there's this kind of juxtaposition where there's too many proof points out there that values aren't enough. You have to add in this sense of a little bit of a carrot for some okay. gain so, as well. So I'll, just, I'll just pull you up there because from my perspective, that's a very moral judgment. And I don't think ethics mm. and morals are necessarily the same thing. No, I think ethics and values perhaps. But, okay. But mm. from my perspective, I, the, and the, the definition of ethics I like mm. is mm. minimising damage 
to all stakeholders. So every decision you make, because it's not about doing the right thing or the wrong thing, mm. it's in in any decision you make, there's going to be someone or something that's mm. going to have some sort of consequence mm. that is not best for them. So that at least consider in those, making those decisions, making decisions that minimise the negative impact for as many people as possible. I, 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 think, I think the consideration of uh, many stakeholders is really important. Um, I... I'm not too keen on the idea of just minimizing negative impact. Like I think that there's a way that you can, you know, because once you've minimized that, you get to zero sort of uh, impact, but there's positive impact that you can create as well. And so having that sort of mix of risk and opportunity or negative impact and where's where's the value that you can you can create rather than, you know, how do we just do things slightly less bad? I think, you know, and I think a lot of where um, where organisations have come from is like we want to continue to do what we're doing but just do it less sort of bad. And for me, that's just being more efficient at doing something which necessarily doesn't benefit society. Well, I mean, Scott, you brought it up before when you talked about the environment. All human activity negatively impacts on the environment. Even the positive things that we think are positive often have a negative impact. You know, the people talk about recycling and then we hear that, well, actually recycling, the energy consumption actually has a bigger, you know, when we all die off, when human beings don't exist, <laughs> yeah. then the environment will recover, right? Because it's in its own balance. It has mm. its own equilibrium. And it's only us that's constantly screwing that up. Chernobyl, Chernobyl's a good example of that. You look at the, the radio... series on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> Not the series, the, the true bit. Oh, right, but, um, the actual... Uh, it's the actual interesting, event. even with all the radiation, nature has thrived. The, the radiation has been less of an impact on it than having humans around, which says something. But I, I, I really want to challenge this. I did a, a bit of a permaculture course, or a piece of one on my recent holiday, and it's really, that's a really, really interesting, um, it's a really interesting, it's, it's not, everyone thinks it's how to garden, and it kind of is, but it's actually a set of principles that lead to how to garden. And the most beautiful one, they, they say if you're going to buy permaculture, a place to do it, don't go buy the good land, buy the really bad land. Mm. Because what you do then is you, you learn to compost and you learn to improve the soil and you actually take bad and you make it good. And then you make these interventions, it's quite interventionalist into nature in ways that actually improve nature. And there's this beautiful um, story that comes out of one of the movies about it that basically says, we're always told that we must have a smaller footprint in our lives. And the problem is there are so many of us now that we're not going to smaller footprint our way out of no. this. It's not going to happen. I was going so to say, everyone, I don't think permaculture is actually a bit able at scale. No, no, no but well, and, I'm not talking about permaculture itself. I'm talking about the, the principles of it. Yeah. But this most beautiful principle comes from it that says, if your aim is to reduce your footprint, you're missing the point because you can't reduce your footprint out of the problems we have. Everyone has to actually aim to maximise their footprint on this planet. But they have to maximise their footprint in a way that we create positive change. And if you think of it like that, that you can go in and make positive interventions in nature and actually improve land and speed things up and help regenerate habitats, then suddenly you go, there are like 8 billion of us who could actually make this world and this environment work extremely well, extremely quickly. So I think to, to exactly Scott's point, you can't ever think about this world as doing less bad. You have to look at it and say, how can I as a human, as a brand, as an organisation, actually do some real good you, you are right though you know like in a, in a way which is <clears throat> if we weren't here then it would be <laughs> the world would be hunky-dory but we are here and we're at a point where we've messed quite a few things up and so 
to Ben's point, it is about like actually how can you fix that? How can you regenerate? How can you um, make a more positive contribution? Yeah. Well, and, and, and by minimising the damage, mm. you you're can, actually going that's to definitely do a positive, part of it. Right? It's yeah. definitely so, part of it. Because mm. what Ben was just saying there rem- reminded me of my uh, dear departed mother, whose whole <laughs> philosophy in life, which she passed <laughs> on to me, is that the one the one obligation of every human being is to leave every situation and every environment better than when they found it. Yeah, it's right. Mm. And and I thought that is such, you know, it's mm. something that I embrace because it was just driven into us like time mm. and time again, that when you walk into any environment, when you walk out of it, it should be better than the way you found it. Now, that could be, mm. for her, it could be just neatening things up. It could be preparing it for the next person that arrived. Mm. It could be just leaving people feeling better than when you first walked into the room. No matter what it is, if we had, how many people are there in the world? About, About 7. 7.2. 7 billion. 7 to 8. <laughs> yeah. Uh, people lived every day of their life on that philosophy. Amaz- amazingly uh, quick, the transformation would, co- uh, would mm. come about. Now apply that to what you're talking about at the company and the brand level, you know, because we're talking quite environmentally in this conversation now, but you go, apply that and just say, did we as a company slash as a brand make everybody's life who works for us better, every supplier's life, you know, whether they grow food or supply in the state or whatever, you know, every um, shareholder, mm-hmm. every person who watches one of our ads or buys from us, did we make their life better? Then suddenly you go, that's actually brand purpose in a way. And you go, if you can build a company around that style of philosophy, you, how can you fail? Like that is how you win. Because everybody is with you. Everyone wants to work for you. Everyone wants to buy from you. Everyone wants to supply into you. That is like half your company problem solved right there. One challenge on that, which is why we have frameworks to sort of work within, is that um, people have different values. And so what I value is good. Leaving someone walking Mm. away could be, I've just dropped a great... um, a great clangor that I think is really funny and I think some other people think yeah. funny, but it might do some mm. damage. It is interesting now how we've got this negative aspect of cults. You know, when you hear of a cult, you think mm. of, you know, people that are taking the Kool-Aid and, and all committing suicide and things mm. like that. Mm. But in actual fact, cults can also be positive things because all they are is groups of people that are absolutely passionately aligned to a particular set of values, a particular mm. vision, and wanting to achieve a particular outcome. And mm. imagine if you could build companies focused on a cult to mm. deliver a better world and a better outcome and a better experience. I mean, you know, I think in some ways the thing I love about cults is that the passion that comes with it and the mm. ability that that passion to actually transfer into action. Hey, guys, I've just noticed the time. This has been a great conversation. But uh, thanks for, uh, for stopping by. Um, so it's the Republic for, of everyone. Of, that's of right. everyone, not for everyone. <laughs> well, kind of both, I guess. Uh, <laughs> but, officially uh, of, yes. <laughs> but uh, Ben and Scott, thanks for thanks for uh, having a chat. Just one last question. I noticed on your website that you believe the perfect company is one where brand sustainability and community all work together to create better products, bigger profits, and a better world. So on that basis which companies actually achieved that.